Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this public debate, uh, which is organized by the Crisis States Research Center at the Development Studies Institute uh, here at the school. My name is James Pazzo, and I'm director of the Crisis States Research Center. This is one of a series of activities that we've been organizing throughout the, the academic year, and we invite you to take a look at our website and come along to our seminars, which are happening on a weekly basis in the school. The topic that we're talking about tonight, it's a debate, it's a very controversial issue, and we're looking at what would be the impact of legalization and regulation of the illicit trade in, um, in uh, drugs and narcotics, particularly on developing countries and from our own point of view, particularly within fragile states. We're organizing this because in our own research in Afghanistan and Colombia, there's considerable evidence that at least for developing countries, especially fragile states, uh, a major contribution to peace and development might be to uh, transform the international community's response to the scourge of drugs. I mean, drugs are no less a scourge. A scourge is particularly in the rich countries, the consuming countries of Europe and North America. I think we would reflect that one can't solve the social problems of the rich North by attacking those who earn survival livelihoods producing drugs. Attacks on supply don't seem to have been very effective in terms of solving our social problems of drug consumption in the North. Removing uh, the criminality associated with the illegal trade of drugs has the potential of removing huge sources of rents that finance rebellion and crime internationally. At the same time, there are big dangers with such a policy, and the UN Organization for Drugs and uh, Crime has argued successively in each annual report that any such move would expand consumption in a disastrous way in developing countries, that legalization could remove disincentives uh, for drug use everywhere in the North and the South. And one could even argue that from a livelihood's perspective, the um, legalization could significantly hurt the livelihoods of farmers in Bolivia, in Afghanistan, and in other places. This is a very, very controversial issue, and we have two excellent um, people to explore those issues with us tonight. In the first instance, and let me introduce them each now, um, Misha Glenny, who's the author of, most recently, of um, uh, McMafia, Seriously Organized Crime, and, and earlier, three books on the problematic transition to liberal politics and economics in Eastern Europe. Uh, he's going to talk to us about his own insights in relationship to the role that drugs play in patterns of international crime. Misha, um, uh, I met at the Global Economic Symposium in Germany last year when we found ourselves um, defending more or less a similar position in relationship to the debate about fragile states. Um, he started life, uh, as I understand it, um, illegally smuggling books across the border in, in Eastern Europe, um, books to dissidents who were fighting for a change and for economic and political liberalization. Later on, he went on to be the Central European correspondent for the Guardian newspaper and later for the BBC. 
He's won the Sony Gold Award for a contribution to broadcasting. He's, he's investigative journalism at its best, in my view. And for those of us in the academe, we find the work of such, such journalists and the research that they're doing extremely important. Michael Hartman has an illustrious career in law. He, he, he'll be the first to say that his main thing is not drugs, but crime. He is um, today mean, manager and senior advisor uh, for um, the criminal justice program of the, of the UN uh, organization, uh, the UN office on drugs and crime. Before, before serving in this post, he served with UNAMA, the peacekeeping um, organization of the United Nations in, uh, in Afghanistan as well. And before that, he worked for the U.S. State Department. He, would, he was an advisor to the Attorney General of Afghanistan. In fact, I heard tonight to two successive Attorney Generals in Afghanistan. Earlier, he served in Kosovo um, as International Prosecutor for the UN in the UN mission to Kosovo. Um, and he worked on issues of terrorism and war crimes. And before that, he was in Bosnia. Uh, he's um, uh, had an experience in the academe and in teaching. He had a Fulbright um, to, to Lahore in Pakistan, where he, he, he taught criminal law. And he served 15 years as prosecutor in San Francisco and taught criminal trial practice at Berkeley in, in California. So we really couldn't have two more expert uh, people to debate this issue tonight. And I welcome first Misha Glenny to, to take the podium. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, James, for <coughs> inviting me here to discuss this subject, which uh, uh, I consider to be um, really of central political and economic importance in the globalized world, and one that is beginning to gain the attention uh, that it merits. Um, now, the presumed aim of prohibition or the war on drugs, of which my esteemed colleague's organization, the UNODC, is a fervent supporter, is in the first instance to block retail access of drug users at the point of consumption and to prevent growers, processors and traffickers from producing and distributing the product uh, at the point of production and in the areas that I call the distribution zones, by which I mean areas like southeastern Europe, the Balkans, uh, or Mexico. Um, it's a policy, the war on drugs, prohibition, call it what you will, which has enjoyed widespread governmental support and has absorbed huge resources, trillions of dollars counted over the years since the 1920s. And yet today, 80 years after this policy was introduced uh, across the Western world, access to drugs, not merely in the traditional areas of high usage, such as the European Union, Canada, the US, and Japan, but now also in many areas of the world where until recently drug usage was exceptional, access has never been easier. 
So despite this zealously executed policy, often with draconian prison sentences or death sentences associated with it, in terms of policy outcomes, we are looking into an abyss of complete and abject failure. I have spoken to countless civil servants, senior law enforcement officers, lawyers, politicians, and even members of Mr. Hartman's august organization who all concede that prohibition is a counterproductive policy which creates exceptionally dangerous unregulated markets, which causes immense social distress, which wrecks often the poorest and most vulnerable countries around the world, while making very bad people very rich and very powerful. This they will say to me in private, but they readily admit they will not put their heads above the parapet in public for fear that their drug warrior friends will zero in on them and threaten their career. But if you go out onto the streets of London now, or for that matter Zagreb, Mexico City, Cape Town, Jakarta or Shanghai, within hours if you have the requisite cash and the desire, you will be in a position to buy the entire gamut of narcotics from marijuana through ketamine, uppers, downers, amphetamines, ecstasy, cocaine or heroin. And you can be fairly confident that unless you make the transition in, transaction in front of a police station, you should be safe from the clutches of law enforcement. But <clears throat> here's a warning. Do be careful about taking them, because you will be ingesting all manner of other products beyond the pharmaceutical. Paint stripper, rat poison, fiberglass, to name but a few. The alcohol industry, a drug that is legal, is carefully regulated with regard to the strength of the liquor it is allowed to sell and as to what it may be mixed with. It can't, for example, be sold in a mixture with petrol. Just as if cocaine were legal, you wouldn't be able to mix it with rat poison, which people do regularly now. But I want to focus a little on the areas of production and distribution and the specific impact of prohibition on these areas. I think it's important to stress here that apart from members of the UNODC and the Office of National Drug Control Policy in the United States, and to judge by the bedroom farce masquerading for policy changes at the British Home Office over the past few years, the most fervent supporters I encountered when researching my book on global organized crime of prohibition and the war on drugs were the exceptionally wealthy members of a marijuana exporting syndicate in Canada and members of a Colombian cocaine producing and exporting business. Why would they want to change a policy that guarantees them hundreds of millions of dollars of income every year for doing very little and risking very little? Now, in terms of the developing world, and here's interestingly a part where the UN, ODC and I uh, fully agree on the danger of what is, uh, is, is, is happening. Over the past five years, the coastal countries of West Africa have fallen like dominoes to an assault launched from distant Colombia, Venezuela and Mexico as some of the world's most ruthless drug cartels seek to bring these territories under their control. 
The UNODC has been warning that drug traffickers have corrupted politicians and security (coughs) officials up to ministerial level, from Guinea-Bissau, dubbed the world's first narco state, even to Ghana, which has long been regarded as the region's model democracy. Now Burkina Faso and other countries claim that this is a genuine security threat. They point to African criminal networks spawned by the cocaine trade who are linking up with terrorist and insurgent groups in the Sahel and Maghreb regions. The problem for West Africa in the 1990s, uh, began in the 1990s when drug groups decided to stimulate European demand for cocaine and crack. The cartels had argued that the U.S. market, remember the U.S., 5% of the world population, which consumes 40% of the world's cocaine, had reached supersaturation point. The Americans couldn't get any more coke up their noses. So, (coughs) they had to sell this excess cocaine that they were producing somehow, and they targeted Western Europe and the new states, new democracies in Eastern Europe, and they targeted it for new routes into the area. And it was a policy that worked. The rise of cocaine usage in Europe has been exceptional. Now, in order to facilitate this and reduce their risk, just as the Colombians work out that you can get the Mexican cartels to reduce there the Colombians' risk by taking over the most difficult part of the business, which is getting it across into the United States, thus guaranteeing that Mexico has become the most unbelievable bloodbath over the past ten years. And we are talking tens of thousands of deaths Uh, in this war in northern and uh, central Mexico. Um, So they thought the same thing with uh, with the European market. Why send it directly to Spain or to Ireland or even through to the Balkans when you can stop off in West Africa first where it's much easier to buy off politicians and because of the fact that they are uh, trafficking an illegal substance and so the value of the substance is greatly inflated and they have billions of dollars at their disposal, they can buy off entire elites in West Africa, which is what they're doing. And as the UNODC itself has pointed out, the amount of cocaine transiting West Africa has rocketed. In 2001, 273 kilograms of the drug were seized off the coast. By 2007, this had reached 14.5 metric tons. It also estimates, the UNODC, that the total traffic through the region is 50 tons, rising every year with an annual value of about $2 billion. Now, if you look at the very helpful uh, document from the Cabinet Office, which the Cabinet Office produced here in the United Kingdom uh, about uh, three years ago, they did a study on profit margins of uh, wholesale and street-level dealers, amongst other things, uh, dealing with the heroin and cocaine trade. They came to the conclusion that, uh, uh, that confiscation of product only becomes effective when you begin to confiscate between 60 and 70% of the product. Only if you manage to confiscate that much does it become not worth it in terms of profit derived from the trade. Um, uh, Only then will you get the dealers and traffickers to to stop doing that. 
At the moment, when it comes to West Africa, we are stopping about 28%. So we are a long way away from uh, this acting as a deterrence to the profit margins gained by people who are sitting in Bogota, in Cali, in Mexico City, and so on and so forth, and who are not going to be busted by this in any way, shape, or form. The power of this money in a region of fragile states like West Africa is overwhelming. The sub-region has been carved out by narco-barons into two hubs, with Guinea-Bissau servicing the north and Ghana servicing the south. But the problem extends far beyond. Cape Verde Islands, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, Nigeria, Senegal, Côte d'Ivoire, and Togo are all major ports of entry for the cocaine trade. This is hurting Sierra Leone and Liberia in particular because they're recovering from traumatic civil wars. So having invested significant military and political effort in bringing these conflicts to a close, the West is largely standing by as the Colombians take over. Now, the DEA and the British Serious Organized Crime Agency, they have courageous officers on the ground looking at this, but with the extent of the global trade in narcotics, the resources are simply insufficient for doing the job. So we have a big, big problem here, um, uh, not just in, in West Africa, but wherever we see a major um, production and distribution zone, um, uh, we have huge consumer demand for it, and you cannot dampen that consumer demand. Let us take a look at Canada, which of course is not the same as Afghanistan or Colombia. Uh, five to six percent of British Columbia's GDP is now accounted for by marijuana production and distribution and retail sale. It is larger than BC's traditional extractive industries in terms of economic uh, um, importance. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police who are responsible for narcotics policy in Canada, estimate that in the greater Vancouver area alone, there are 15,000 grow operations in residential units. So that's excluding those being grown in factories, not to mention the vast farms which exist in the bush in BC. What is absolutely astonishing about the statistics from BC is that Quebec overtook British Columbia in production two years ago. Now that horticultural techniques and Canada's free energy, effectively their electrical energy because of the, uh, 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 because of the hydroelectrics, uh, has enabled the uh, production to spread everywhere. Where is much of this marijuana going? It's going down to the United States, where it's actually marketed by the Canadians as organically grown. And, of course, in San Francisco and L.A., this is an incredibly sought-after product. So <clears throat> what you have here is a market which is out of control but which is unregulated. You will never know whether that marijuana is organic that you're smoking. Um, <clears throat> And uh, you have these characters who I met who are making absolute fortunes out of this, who live middle-class lives, but also you see it spreading into the middle class. In Nelson, British Columbia, the local mayor and the local council are never going to move against the marijuana trade because the local economy will collapse. So we've got a system here where the emperor essentially has no clothes. And what we need to do is we need to reduce the damage 
which this unregulated market causes at the point of production, at the point of distribution, horrifically, but also all the social problems associated with it in the United, uh, in, in the con main consumer areas. But let's remember, it's not just the main consumer areas. It's not just our affluent lifestyle where we like to take drugs and we don't understand the association of blood in Colombia or Mexico with the cocaine. Um, <clears throat> let's take a look at what's happening in Iran. All sorts of interesting things going on in Iran at the moment. But did people know that Iran has, percentage-wise, probably the highest usage of heroin in the world per capita? Close to 10% of Iranians, Iranian citizens, are now heroin users. Why is that the case? Because, of course, it is on the road, this huge uh, silk road of narcotics going out of Afghanistan, through Russia, through Karachi, into Mumbai, through Iran, into Turkey, up through Bulgaria. An astonishing path of, uh, of heroin. Uh, and to finish off with, I will, in order to introduce uh, Michael, who has Afghanistan as one of his, um, as one of his areas of speciality, let's have a look at Afghanistan. Tony Blair, you may or may not remember, in his fervor to support George Bush with the intervention in Afghanistan, stood up and said, we have to do this to get rid of the scourge of heroin off the streets of Britain's inner cities. Well, 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 that was a policy which went very badly wrong because the minute the intervention happened, up went the production of heroin, down went the price, and Liverpool was flooded with cheap heroin. So that didn't work. Not only that, the Taliban very quickly realizes, while we're off busy invading Iraq, that it had time to consolidate itself really get the trade going again, and it was uh, uh, able to purchase, according to Antonio Maria uh, um, uh, da Costa the, of the UNODC, over $100 million of weaponry every year as a result of its involvement in the heroin trade. That would be bad enough that the war on drugs is defeating our war effort in Afghanistan or the war against terrorism or whatever you want to call it, but worse still is the government that we're propping up in Afghanistan is riddled with drug corruption from top to bottom. What are we doing with this policy? It's absolutely insane. We are not bringing stability to Afghanistan. We are bringing corrupt governance based on the poppy trade, which is based on the prohibition policy of the Western world. Later on, if you want to ask me questions about what you do about it, I will come up with some ideas. But for the moment, those would be my fundamental arguments to suggest that it is high time that we stood up and said that with this policy, the emperor has no clothes. Thank you. Now, Michael. arguing this side of the status quo in front of this group of students is probably not going to be as successful if I had appeared before, say, a 50 and plus uh, law enforcement seminar. 
but I will try the best I can. Look, uh, for many, many years, we, various nations, could not agree on very many things. One of the things that we agreed on, and one of the most universally applied treaties and conventions, are the narcotics trafficking conventions. So before we decide to legalize narcotics, let's first think, why is it that almost every nation in the world has, on several occasions, 1971, 1988, and the latest, signed the conventions that say you should not have trafficking in drugs. Now, I'm a prosecutor all my life, first for the U.S. and then the U.N., and there's two things I've learned as a prosecutor. One thing is, just because you have a criminal law against something doesn't mean it's going to stop. We have criminal laws against murder. We have murders. We have criminal laws against child abuse and rape, and we still have it. We have criminal laws against uh, uh, selling fake Louis Vuitton purses and uh, counterfeiting DVDs, and we still have them sold on the street corner. So simply because a law doesn't work doesn't necessarily mean you want to get rid of the law. The second issue, and this is something that I firmly believe you may not, and that is that the criminal law has a deterrent effect, known as general deterrence, which means that you don't look at the number of crimes that happen with the criminal law in place. You need to think, if we take it away and make it legal, is it going to increase? If you do not believe that the use of narcotics of all types is going to significantly increase, then Misha has a very good argument. If you believe that in taking away the criminal law and making it legal, you will have a massive increase in the use of drugs across the populations, then you have to do a balancing effect. And my boss, and I speak here, by the way, this might be podcast, so this is my own personal opinion and not that of the United Nations, uh, Ban Ki-moon, or Maria Antonio Costa. Okay? Now, with that out of the way, look, Uh, when I come home, I've been in Afghanistan a while, I'm struck, I, I live in uh, the left coast, uh, and uh, I am struck by the commercials that I see for drugs that I never heard of, for problems that I never heard of. I found out that as an older man, I should be worried about my flow. And when I am at the urinal, if I don't have a strong manly flow that sounds like a good whitewater rafting uh, river, if it's kind of a spurty flow, then I need to take Flomax. Because to be a man, 
You have to have a good flow, especially if you got another guy next to you and he's listening. Now, I learned about the, whatever it's called, the restless leg syndrome, and there are pills that make you feel good when you run across meadows, and I don't know if they're hair, uh, some type of hair conditioner commercials or drug commercials or what, but I know it's a good pill to have. So my point to you is, advertisement runs this world. Advertisement makes all these people buy things they don't need, except for iPhones. But other than that, there's a lot of stuff people don't need. They buy it. Why? Because of advertisement. Now, what is going to happen when you legalize heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine? How many people here drink Red Bull? Okay, you know what? Red Bull is nothing. Compared to, yes, Red Bull with methamphetamine, okay? You take that stuff, you'll be awake for a week. You can put all that studying together. So what's going to happen when you legalize these drugs? There's serious stuff. Is that it is going to result in a lot more people having it. In the developed world, and uh, there's some studies that UNODC have done, and my boss likes to talk about this. In the developed world, right now, with exceptions like Iran, Iran the drug is cheap because it's transit <coughs> through. But there are other countries where you don't have the price point that low. And there was an example of Bolivia, for example. In Bolivia, uh, to give an example of this. In Bolivia, uh, the GDP per capita is 42 times higher in the U.S. than Bolivia. The Bolivian price of cocaine is $9 a gram, which is above 10% of the price of the U.S. You figure that out. The price is four times higher in Bolivia than the U.S. given the incomes that you can buy. The uh, use in Bolivia is about half of that as in the U.S. Why? Because the U.S. can afford to buy it. Now, if you look at, for example, tobacco, tobacco, which is really nasty and is legal, tobacco is growing very rapidly in the uh, developing world. In Africa, for example, it's going 3.5% a year. Why? Because it's relatively cheap. If the price point goes down, that means that you will have more people using. And the whole point of legalization, let's take that money away from the cartels and let's save people money. And it, look, gasoline tax. People who want to be green say we should, in the U.S., increase the gasoline tax to that of Europe. Why? Because otherwise, when it's cheap, we use a hell of a lot more. People will use more. In the developing world, it is a much greater problem because while you can say, and this is again something I think that both sides certainly agree with, what should be the focus, and we say this at UNODC, is drug treatment, serious drug treatment, 
And that means a lot of attention on not just come in and have some methadone, but also looking at the problems and issues that cause drug use and dealing with the social issues, having everything from midnight basketball to uh, programs in school that keep people there afterwards rather than having them go out. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to reduce as well as to treat those who are addicts. But the resources that the West has, which are quite significant and should be greater, they are not there in the developing world. And what will happen is in the developed world, advertisement is going to increase the usage. The price being lower is going to result in the usage going up generally in the developing world of these drugs. And are the drugs in themselves dangerous? Some more so than others. Those who want to legalize love to talk about marijuana. I will take the fifth on that, as we say, because I went to Berkeley in the 70s. Okay? <laughs> but let's talk about other drugs. For 15 years, I did violent crime prosecutions in San Francisco. And I will tell you this. Maybe 50% of the homicides were because, I won't say because, because that says there's no individual or free will, were assisted by the idiots who are shooting at each other having a lot of alcohol in their system. I would say maybe a third of my cases dealt with drugs. I'm not going to say marijuana because that usually results in eating a whole bunch of chips while you watch stupid TV and laugh a lot. I'm talking about crystal meth or ice. I'm talking about crack cocaine. I'm talking about those drugs that PCP uh, and other drugs that cause people to react and act much more stupid than they would otherwise. And that results in people getting hurt. So when you're talking about deaths, and I, I looked up a few numbers, in the U.S., I believe, fifth, or actually this is worldwide, excuse me, 15,000 drug-induced deaths versus 18,000 alcohol-induced deaths. Now, I don't know the basis of those. That's from the CDC, not UNODC, but the, the, the Center for Disease Control, which is seen as fairly neutral, I think you would say, in the U.S. on this issue. And the difference is that if you look at the world, 50% of the people of the world drink alcohol, 30% smoke, and the use of drugs is 5%. And if you take out the people that do it very occasionally, the 5% means during a year you used any drug once that is controlled narcotics or marijuana, something like that, then for really the serious drug users, it's less than 1%. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you increase the number of drug users significantly, and again, I admit, if you don't think that legalizing, allowing perhaps advertisement, uh, making it really easy to go in and buy whatever you want is going to increase, then you don't have additional harm. 
But most of the folks that I've talked to, privately as well as publicly, think that you are going to have an increase. And if that happens, you have to do some serious balancing. Uh, now, second issue. Let's talk about organized criminals. Really not nice people. And I would like to say that this book is really excellent. And I have not been paid a promotional fee by Mr. Fisher Lennon, but it's a really good book. And it talks about what organized crime does. And it talks about how creative they are. And it talks about how uh, in Russia, in the Balkans, all over the place, when they want to make money, they'll make money. Now let me ask you, do you think that if you say, oh, sorry Colombians, guess what? General Mills is going to take over distribution of cocaine and you're going to be able to buy it in your breakfast cereal instead of sugar. So you guys are out of a job. What do you think the Colombians are going to do? Oh, okay. Well, I guess I have no other skills, so I'm going to open a McDonald's franchise and see what my chances are. No, I don't think so. What is going to happen is that they will simply, one, use an old-time organized crime technique known as extortion, which was used from everything from garbage collection to the old insurance bit, and make sure that they keep the distribution networks. Because maybe the grocery store or whoever's going to be selling these wants to make sure that they buy from the people who say to them, if you don't buy from us and you buy from General Foods, that is going to result in maybe your place burning down. Or the organized crime folks simply go into all the other smuggling things that they can go into, including smuggling of arms, smuggling of cigarettes, smuggling of persons, smuggling of diamonds. There's a lot of other things for them to go into. And the wars and the shooting, I would guess, would perhaps even exacerbate because now the pie is smaller and now they have to make sure that they cut in and get into other business. So another issue is what is going to happen to the gangsters and the organized criminals who are now doing the drugs? What are they going to do? Uh, or uh, I would also ask some of the other questions which need to be asked if you're talking about a change in policy. Are you going to sell to anyone? Or are you going to set ages? 21? 26? 18? Okay, you now have a market that is below the age you're going to allow it to be sold to, and that means that you're still going to have, albeit smaller, but the folks doing it. Are you going to do all drugs? All of them? Even the ones that cause significant injury and death. I heard today that ketamine is one of the hip rave drugs and it destroys your kidneys and gives you cancer after a year. Is that okay? Is it only heroin? Is it only cocaine? How about crack cocaine? How about people who want a higher and more fun high? What do you do? Or how do you regulate it? Because if the government is going in the business of regulating drugs, you can be sure that the guys and gals in the home office and in Washington are going to be behind the time and that you hipsters 
who are at some rave club, I don't even know what that is, and want to listen to music and do the rave drugs, they're going to be behind the times and you're not going to want that fuddy-duddy. Would you, you know, there's a commercial. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. Okay? It was in the United States. And the concept was Oldsmobile was kind of an old-fashioned car. Your dad would drive it. You certainly don't want to drive it. Now it's bankrupt and there's no more Oldsmobiles. But would you want to use your father's drugs? Do you want to use drugs your parents use? Come on. No, you want to use new stuff, okay? And so if you want to use new drugs, are they going to be approved by the government? Is there some approval method? In the United States, the FDA takes something like five to ten years to approve drugs. Or do you just sell them all? So all the drugs or not? Third, what about if the amount or number of people who use the drugs increase? What about the increased social costs? What about the increased medical costs? Yes, you can say, but we'll save money because we'll take a bunch of policemen off the drug patrol and put them on other things. Okay, I don't know about you, but government isn't really good at shrinking. They might move them to other duties, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pay for what needs to be paid for. Uh, when you're talking about legalization, it's real easy to talk about, that's fine, who cares? You got a doobie, even if it's 10 times what it used to be back when I went to Berkeley. Hey, no big deal. But we're talking here about heroin, crack cocaine, really bad methamphetamine variants, and the new stuff. And that means, do you want to have a lot more people no longer be productive members of society, but need those things. Now, let me end by saying, UNODC believes most importantly that what needs to be done is that you have to have the economic development and the conditions, including such cherished goals that we'll never quite reach, such as ending poverty, because it is the motivation to take drugs among many people that destroys their lives because perhaps they can't find a job or they don't have a nice place to live or they don't have other alternatives. So it's not just drug treatment, it is trying to deal with taking people away from the reasons that get them to do drugs. That needs to be done more, it's not done enough. Second, the farmers. We have found that the development of their economy in, in Afghanistan, for example, it's not just teaching a farmer to grow wheat or roses or pomegranates rather than the drugs, rather than the opium. It has to do with building up the economy of the entire area so that there are alternatives to even farming if food farming, for example, does not pay. That is an emphasis of UNODC as well. The law enforcement emphasis is there. I am not suggesting it is a panacea, and I'm not suggesting that it is the most important. I think the other areas are most important, certainly demand reduction and harm reduction. But how many of you, if you could just try, just try some heroin, just once. 
How many of you, if you could just go into a store and buy it, and there was no really stigma, because how can you say that there's a stigma to doing something that society has just legalized? How many of you would try it, and maybe a second time, or maybe a third time? I can tell you, 20 years ago, I, had, uh, I was in a hospital, and I had morphine. And let me tell you, oh, that was good. It felt so good. Now, I'm not saying that I would do it if I was legal, if it was legal. But I can't give you a definite yes or no. Because the criminal sanction is all our societies saying, we don't want you to be doing this. So before you remove the criminal sanction from trafficking, then the question is, how many more people will be using these drugs? One last thing. Uh, I had experience, as all baby uh, prosecutors do, with uh, doing minor drug cases. I would quote Mr. Costa, who says, sure. we should be going after the big fish, the sharks, the barracudas, not the minnows. So I would certainly agree with those who say that the enforcement against traffickers should not be on the street level, but should be on the upper levels. And that needs to be done more so that mere arrests aren't simply counted. And I also believe that every place that makes use of drugs illegal or possession of drugs illegal should have as an alternative to imprisonment or jail alternatives that include treatment or community service. That's not the, but that's much different than making it legal. So again, the bottom line, is it going to increase the number of people significantly who use the drugs? And I suggest to you that's the actual tipping point for further discussions. Thank you. Okay. Now, um, can you hear me? I'm going to ask Misha to come back just very briefly um, with a very quick response, and we turn to your questions and your comments. Uh, <clears throat> just as uh, Michael asked me the question, will legalization result in greater uses, uh, a greater number of users, I have to respond by saying, does your policy work over 80 years? Empirical evidence answer that policy does not work. So it is behoven on to you, first of all, to defend that policy, which so far has failed. Regarding the branding of uh, drugs when they come through, you ban advertising. We don't allow cigarettes to be advertised on television here. Very soon, cigarettes won't even be seen in the places where they're sold. They'll be underneath the, they'll be underneath the counter. You regulate it. You are the state. You are powerful in order to protect citizens' health, but to make sure that they are not driven underground through this illegal activity. So you regulate the contents as well. You make sure that if they are taking these drugs, if they make the decision, that they are not going to be able to take sufficient amounts or it will be uh, manufactured in a way which conforms to certain standards so that it doesn't damage them. Let me quote you 
from the first global narcotics associ- uh, 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 drugs study, the UNODC. Quote, that in Britain, 75% of serious crimes are associated with drugs, that 70% of the income of criminals who are drug addicts is generated by theft, that a drug addict needs £43,000 a year to support the addiction. And when you're operating in that unregulated market, the, the stress and strains on things like the health service uh, <coughs> are absolutely huge, not to mention police uh, and prisons and so on and so forth but if you're legalizing it you're taxing it and you can hypo- hypothecate those taxes uh, in order to um, uh, uh, help uh, regulate the social circumstances what happens to the Colombian cartels you said that they're going to you know, act as extortionists or they're going to rebel against uh, the new people coming in to manufacture I have one word to say to you Seagram's What happened in the 1920s and 30s? Chicago devastated by Al Capone et al. And what happens to the Canadians, who were, as always, sort of bullied into going for prohibition by the United States, says, enough of that, we are going to go back legal with alcohol, and Seagram's takes over. Not Al Capone brackets Canada Inc. It's Seagram's. You legalize it, you get a legitimate operation uh, in, in exchange. Heroin in Switzerland, which is now available to registered addicts under medical supervision. What is the current, what was the age of heroin addiction in Switzerland before this policy was introduced in the 1990s? The average age was 20. What is it now? It is 40. So Switzerland has done a lot more to assist those people uh, and those potential people involved in heroin than the United States or other countries which have a prohibition. Uh, uh, strategy and finally those people who support prohibition have got a shot coming because it's all fine when it's the Al- uh, when it's the Afghans or the Colombians who have to swim in rivers of blood because of our prohibition policy but what happens when production comes to Canada what happens when it comes to the United Kingdom well that is happening now that it is synthetic drugs unregulated illegally produced which are now steadily taking over in the long term from cocaine, heroin, and other organically-based drugs because they can replicate and improve the high. They are unregulated. They are being produced in the European Union, Canada, the United States, and so on and so forth. Do we have the law enforcement capacity to deal with that? We do not. Look at Canada. Law enforcement has lost this game. And so it's not acting as a deterrence. The thing that you posit fails. If you have more people using drugs after legalization, at least we'll know that those drugs are not going to kill them. At least they will be properly administered and they won't, I believe, be subject to huge advertising campaigns because the state has the intelligence and the ability to say no. Okay, Misha, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to pass immediately to the audience and to your to your uh, questions and comments. Please keep them brief, and I'll collect a few, and then we'll we'll do a few cycles. Okay, first down here. As legalization is unlikely to happen in the near future, surely the immediate uh, issue is that we should um, be uh, changing the emphasis 
from uh, cutting supply to cutting demand. And can I say, I say that as a former parliamentarian who took through the House of Commons in this country in 1986 the Controlled Drugs Penalties Act to increase the maximum sentence for trading Class A drugs from 14 years to life. And I did it with all party support. And um, it's been the consequences of that act which has actually persuaded me to Mr. Glenny's position. Uh, that basically, all we've seen in the past 23 years is the fact the price of Class A drugs going right down, and that's on the government's own figures, let alone their purity, which is a very, very important point, particularly with drugs like, um, uh, like um, methamphetamine. So my point, Mr. Hartman, is that really, um, you, you basically, that, 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 it isn't, that my act wasn't a deterrent. The private member's bill that became an act of parliament was not a deterrent. One final point, is he aware that certainly in this country our jails are just awash with drugs? I used to represent two prisons in parliament, and uh, I went into the governor and said, why not have closed visits? And he said, look, it, he, he took me aside like an amateur because uh, I didn't understand how prisons were run. Uh, he said, look, if you have closed visits, I'll have riots. You must remember the first principle of running prisons is uh, that we have to do it with total cooperation of the prisoners. People go into prison in this country clean and come out addicts. Thank you. Uh, I saw somebody. This gentleman right up here. Here, here, there's... Uh, why don't you stay down below? It's too much to run up and down. Let him run across. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. It cannot dampen consumer demand. That is, I hope you would agree, a point of view. At the moment that we were to legalize drugs, every academic qualification would become worthless. That is, is it not, a point of view? Thank you. This woman down here. I'd like to thank both speakers for two excellent presentations. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, more and more countries are recognizing the arguments that the war on drugs has actually failed. And they're trying to push at the edges of the UN conventions. Portugal, Spain, parts of the US, parts of Australia, Eastern European countries, and so on and so on. Um, would you, Michael, agree to go back to the UNODC and institute an independent um, uh, impact assessment of the UN conventions, completely independently done by academics, so that all the arguments that you two have presented th this evening could be weighed absolutely objectively and independently and make some recommendations to the UN about possible reform of the UN conventions if that is what the impact assessment shows to be uh, desirable. Can you see your hands again? Yeah, the gentleman here. Uh, hi, uh, I was just wondering, Rather than arguing for either the status quo or complete legalization, wouldn't the logical compromise between both st stances be decriminalization? That way, it's not, complete, it's not legal so that you can't advertise drugs with your cornflakes or something like that. But as you know, examples of Portugal have shown, where the uses of drugs, especially amongst young, uh, the youth, has decreased significantly, and that deaths from heroin and drugs have almost halved, and even HIV uh, you, uh, infections have decreased by 17%. I mean, isn't decriminalization just the logical uh, choice between both stances? Thank you. Well, 
Gabi here in front, and then, and then we'll give brief responses and take another round of questions. Thank you very much for your presentations. Um, however, I would like to ask both of you uh, in your answers to focus a little bit more on fragile states and developing countries. The arguments have been juggled around in, in several ways, um, but the demand in industrial countries and the production in fragile states and what is going on in between hasn't been focused on enough uh, for my taste. And that also means the question of legalization is one, but as I always understood it, legalization is c intrinsically linked to regulation and not just buy and sell as you like and mix it with whatever you want, but regulate it. Now, I do understand that industrialized states have much more capacity to regulate compared to fragile states or poor developing countries. I would like you to focus on that and what, that, what that would mean. Because I think the, the consistence of an argument in industrialized countries dealing with demand and dealing with synthetic drugs is entirely different than the arguments from the perspective of a fragile state where actually my impression is nothing is regulated, copper, diamonds, drugs or whatever, and the regulation of these trade streams would change a lot. Okay, if I could just take Chairman's prerogative and add to that last question, turn it over to both of you. Um, it seems that most efforts to try to diversify agricultural production in, 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 in developing countries and particularly fragile states uh, away from drug production into high-value crops of various sorts are, are doomed to fail until these levels of rents are removed. And I mean, I think that's also part of the question of the particularity of fragile states. And uh, while drugs um, are the source of, of crime and violence in the North, in these countries, I mean, uh, uh, Nisha spoke of rivers of blood, and I don't think it's an exaggeration. So one needs to consider the relative impact on Northern and Southern society as well here. So let me turn it over to both of you, and then we'll come back uh, for another round. Go ahead. We'll get to both first this time. The first on the issue of, again, the rivers of blood, and I really think that's uh, quite an image. Here's one. My understanding is that of homicides, six times as many homicides are committed by people on drugs as opposed to people who are trying to get money for drugs. Again, the issue, will you have an increase in the use of drugs? If you have an increase in the use of drugs, and if, number two, you believe that regardless of the purity of drugs, which I assume this government body would regulate, Drugs by themselves, certain of them, can kill people, can destroy them, can cause severe health effects to them, then you need to do a balancing. And that, therefore, to say or imply that simply having 
pure heroin or pure crystal meth or pure ketamine is going to be fine, that isn't necessarily true. Okay? So, second of all, if a lot more people use it, then you result in more violent crime. And I can tell you that my own experience as a prosecutor of violent crime is that certain drugs will massively increase the chance that a conflict between two individuals will result in serious crime. Okay. Uh, my understanding on some of the experiments, uh, Portugal, Spain, etc., that deal with decriminalization of uh, use of certain drugs. I don't think that you can take them to mean that's what's going to happen when the selling of drugs also becomes completely legal. Because that means you not only take away the deterrence value, but you also take away the social opprobrium of the fact that these drugs are not supposed to be taken. They are not good. I therefore, dis third, when the gentleman said you cannot dampen consumer demand. Sorry, someone said that. He's quoting you. Okay, I didn't pick up your quoting him. Okay. Then I'll respond to that. Uh, so you can dampen consumer demand. One only has to look at what's going on, I think, with cigarettes, for example. So there is certainly a way to reduce demand. In the position that UNODC has, which I think you would agree with, is that we should be putting a lot more emphasis in the reduction of consumer demand. Agreed, completely. But I do not think that in itself is a panacea. Uh, okay, I've talked enough. Okay, okay. Um, I, you know, uh, first of all, uh, on the point of uh, that you're making about um, uh, about. Um, sorry, actually, I forgot what it was. Um, <coughs> I did too. Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, the uh, I, no, I wanted. I was thinking about the the, the business of compromise and decriminalisation. Uh, I certainly think decriminalisation uh, is an improvement on the uh, explicit uh, uh, policy of of war on drugs, of of the war on drugs, of, of, of prohibition. Um, it's not just the countries mentioned. Uh, this year, there's been an astonishing turnaround, and that is. Uh, Mexico, Argentina, now Brazil is considering it, but get this, Colombia um, have started the process of decriminalization. Um, uh, a, a range of senior figures, ex-policemen, ex-president, being led by uh, ex-president Cardoso of Brazil, have now called on the United States publicly uh, to legalize drugs because of the damage it does to their countries to an extent addressing your problem. I, I've, I feel as though I had addressed the issue to an extent of what happens uh, in the production and distribution zones, but I, I'll come back to it briefly. So decriminalization certainly uh, helps, but you still have a problem. Let's say that decriminalization is, uh, means that you're allowed to have 
uh, an ounce of marijuana. That's 28 grams of marijuana in your personal possession. That's it's not a criminal offence. How do you get that 28 grams? Who is distributing to 10 consumers down one street an ounce of marijuana each? The answer is somebody who's liable for criminal prosecution if all you're doing is decriminalizing the end user. I.e., you're not decriminalizing the market. I.e., you're not controlling the market. I.e., your 10 users who have got their marijuana legally could be being sold a pup with nasty stuff uh, inside it. So <clears throat> in terms of the sort of fundamental issue of your ability to regulate, uh, regulate the market, um, that doesn't quite work. And in terms of uh, what I was arguing, I wasn't arguing for pure heroin or pure methamphetamine. I was asking for state control as to what goes into those drugs. And you can put in material which lowers the impact of those drugs without uh, harming the person who in, ingests it. Um, in terms of the developing, I mean, the re, uh, what I wanted to argue, what I was hoping to argue is, is that here we are worrying about you know, a whole range of issues associated with drugs, with antisocial behavior, with, with crime, with bloated prison populations in the United Kingdom uh, and the United States, and uh, as our friend here pointed out, uh, which are awash with uh, drugs, um, with huge discrimination against minority populations. Let me tell you what the economic incentive system in the United States is in terms of uh, drug busts. Uh, <clears throat> in the state of New York, for example, um, uh, when a police officer goes and testifies um, in court in one session uh, for any offense, he gets an extra $100, right? Now, what incentive does that have for you if you have a ghetto where you have a lot of black people and where there are a lot of drugs, and then you have sprawling suburbs where there are also a lot of drugs, but they're bought by white people? Um, what do you do if you're a policeman? Do a raid through the black ghetto. Then you pick up all these people with drugs on them, and every time you go to court for the bust, you get $100. There is a really pernicious economic incentive built in, certainly in the United States, to the way that justice is administered uh, in, the, in, in uh, narcotics. So you have a lot of problems associated uh, with social inequality, deprivation, and uh, 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 criminality, and so on, in the consumer countries. But what I, why I spoke about Afghanistan, why I spoke about Colombia, and why I referred to uh, rivers of blood, and really, you know, uh, pop down to, to Ciudad Juarez and talk to the people there and see if they think that I'm exaggerating what is going on in that city. It is absolutely outrageous. You are getting dozens of people killed every week. It is a frightful situation. Um, <coughs> so... Uh, uh, you know, the argument that somehow you're going to make life better for people who come under the wheel of an illegal drugs trade in Colombia, Afghanistan, Mexico, the Balkans. I mean, one of the reasons why I got interested in this in the first place was to see what was happening in southeastern Europe, to see that underneath the fog of war, what was really going on was that organized criminal syndicates were using the chaos in southeastern Europe to transit, amongst other things, drugs. That's why it became 
you know, one of the new uh, zones of, of, of heroin um, distribution into the, into the European Union. So I am very, very concerned, primarily concerned, about what happens to the production and distribution zones because they have a much greater impact in terms of violence, in terms of destabilization of the state. And that's why I pointed out about West Africa. The point is, is that it's cheap to buy states in West Africa. State capture is cheap. And if you're a Colombian or a Mexican or Venezuelan drug baron with literally billions of dollars at your disposal, why not buy a country? And with all due respect, the war on drugs has no answer to that problem. It has no answer at all. Okay. Thank you. Let's go back to the floor. And this gentleman here. Right. Thank you. Um, uh, I really enjoyed both of your um, arguments. Um, I'm going to be devil's advocate here and argue against both um, stances here. Um, my questions are to do with education and socioeconomic development. Uh, my first question goes to uh, Mr. Glennie. Um, could education not be harnessed to dampen demand? Uh, and further, you mentioned the wide-scale socioeconomic problems, for example, in Eastern Africa and uh, well, sorry, uh, Western Africa and, and Afghanistan. Um, could socioeconomic development not be used as a means to um, fight against uh, uh, drugs trade? Uh, my second question goes to Mr. Hartman. Uh, again, could education not be harnessed to teach people a responsible way um, to use recreational drugs? Uh, I mean, if you give an adult uh, the choice to make, uh, could we not, as a society, um, uh, use education to teach um, people how to um, use drugs in a responsible way, the same way we uh, regard alcohol and cigarettes as a health issue, not a crime issue? Thank you. Thank you. Can we go to the woman in the center here? Yeah. Yeah, you. <laughs> Sorry. Now, with my periphery. Thank you both very much. Um, the lady in the front touched on this before, but it was kind of glossed over. The idea of regulation, it's quite easy to talk about that sat in a Western European country where we have an effective government and effective law enforcement. But how do you enforce regulation in Africa, South America? fragile states where you don't have the same governmental apparatus to deal with legalization and regulation. And um, Mr. Glenn, you talked about um, the impact on Africa and how the war on drugs isn't helping there, but if you can't regulate it, then will it actually make any difference to those, those countries that are the most at risk? Okay, thank you. Over here, yeah. Thank you. Um, my question goes as to um, the control that uh, Mr. Glennie suggested that uh, there could be a method of padding the drugs to try and reduce the impact on the body. Um, however, my question is that even padded, um, drugs will still prove to be an addictive substance and one that is far more dangerous than chain smoking or alcohol. Um, it's certainly it's much easier to overdose. And uh, I was just wondering, considering that even with regulation and controlled levels of tobacco and cigarettes, you get people smoking packs a day. Obviously, this is much more dangerous with um, drugs. And 
in your suggestions, since there's no way for them to limit the amount that an individual buys, uh, how would you prevent people from seeking greater and greater amounts of the drug to obtain a high and thus killing themselves that way? Thank you. Can we go right up on top on the right? Thank you. The uh, question I have is for Mr. Glenny, so let's assume that it's the right thing to do. Could you speak up a bit? For Mr. Glenny, so assuming it's the right thing to do to legalize drugs, considering that it is the possibly the hottest political topic and uh, will lose you your government or win you your next term like nothing else, how on earth can this go through any Western government? Thank you. wanted to bring up the issues of uh, education and harm reduction, which I didn't feel were brought up as much. Uh, Michael, in Portugal, drugs have been decriminalized. We've seen decreased levels of use. Doesn't this prove that if we remove the criminal incentive, well, the, the, if we remove the criminalization of the use, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see an explosion of drug use. And like the, this, this is like with the arguments with tobacco. We have tackled t tobacco use by, um, like, for education, and, and this is despite years and years of the tobacco industry lobbying and promoting their, their drugs as safer than, well, relatively safe, I think. Thank you. Just pass it behind you, please. Um, my question is directed towards Mr. Glennie, um, and I was wondering if you could please be a bit more specific in terms of which drugs and in what kind of doses you feel should be legal um, and how you would prevent a new demand growing for harder, harder to find and stronger drugs and in stronger dosages. Uh, thank you. Let me pass quickly. I'll, and just, uh, I'll be as brief as yeah, possible. Three, three, four minutes okay. each. Very, uh, very. Let me make one thing straight. I'm not advocating legalization because I want everyone to take drugs. I would prefer people to take less drugs. I don't think they're a good idea. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> I'm just looking at social reality and the way that the world works and the way that the economy works. So, um, in terms of uh, education when it comes to dampening demand, I'm all for that uh, as, as well. Uh, do as much as you can and also if drugs were legalized, I would argue, as I uh, now argue with alcohol, that if people are found driving a car, for example, having taken drugs, as should be the case with alcohol that isn't, they should be put in prison and the key should be thrown away. Right? So you should be not, not undertaking dangerous activities under the influence of narcotics, and in that I include alcohol. And frankly, alcohol has got away with an easy ride this evening. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very, very dangerous drug. It imposes a huge uh, um, burden on uh, the health service, uh, and yet our latest government's uh, <coughs> response to it was to lower the price of it. That's not the sort of thing you should be doing. You should be hiring the price of alcohol. You shouldn't be banning it, just as whilst they've brought down cigarette usage, which is absolutely fantastic, they haven't banned cigarettes. They've just made it less convenient to use them. So you can dampen demand without actually going so far as to ban it. Now, the qu question of regulation in uh, South America and Africa. Let's take the two cases. First of all, uh, the, calls, the calls for legalization 
from South America are becoming uh, overwhelming. It's a very, very loud chorus because, you know, they see what goes on on the ground in the favelas, in the barrios, when you have an uh, illegal drug industry. They do have huge problems with governance, um, but I think if you look at Colombia and if you look at Brazil and if you look at, three, uh, at Argentina, three of the states which are calling for regulation, these are countries which are absolutely critical to the cocaine trade um, who actually do have the power of the state sufficient to do something about it. Let me just give you one statistic about Colombia. Colombia derives about 2% of its GDP from cocaine. Right? That's really not terribly big. But the amount of violence that is caused as a consequence of that cocaine is really disproportionate. The Colombian state, which gets a billion dollars every year or did until recently in the United States, although here's a secret, 70% of it stays in the United States to helicopter manufacturers and uh, the like, a um, <clears throat> billion dollars every year to combat, uh, to combat the cocaine trade and fails. Uh, the Colombian state really does have the ability to police a legalized uh, drug market. In Africa, it is much more difficult. Um, however, let us take another trade that was going on in Africa in the 1990s and blooming and causing wars left, right, and center, and that is the blood diamond trade. Why, did, why was the blood diamond trade suppressed to a fairly significant degree? It was because you had a system of regulation agreed upon both by the West and by the African countries themselves whereby people could source the origins of the diamonds and so the money that was being used by blood diamonds to fuel the wars in Sierra Leone and, and Liberia uh, was no longer uh, available. And so we have seen the reduction in some of the most pernicious trades in Africa without the need for hugely um, uh, uh, stable governments in order to do it. But everyone has to pull together on that. So there would be creative ways to address this issue. And now I'm going to take your question along with one of the other questions about the um, uh, drugs versus alcohol and cigarettes and what drugs and so on and so forth. Because this is an illegal market, we have not been testing these drugs properly. There has been no pharmaceutical research in the major categories of narcotics because, why? Because they are banned. You're not allowed to research into the effects of cannabis. One of the most widely used drugs around the world no one is allowed to touch it except under the most strictest conditions of uh, secrecy and, uh, and control. This is insane. So when people tell you about what skunk does or doesn't do, can I tell you that they do not know because they do not have any scientific evidence to back it up. What they have is a lot of anecdotal evidence on both sides of the argument. So let us find out exactly what all of these drugs do when it comes to a slow, considered process of legalization. And people who, with respect, who say that, that marijuana is more dangerous than alcohol and cigarettes, there is a very, very big question mark over that 
over that statement, and that even includes some scientific research in countries where it's allowed uh, to take place. When you have a situation when a government is ignoring the legally mandated advisory council, um, its advice by statute, uh, and just throwing out their advice because it is politically convenient and gains votes, uh, then you're in a state where even countries where the rule of law is working, it's not working very well. And this comes onto your question about how do you go about the question of legalization when it's so, so popular. Well, what is happening is you are seeing the gradual erosion of a tough war on drugs. In Canada, where before the Harper came, government came in, they were coming fairly close to legalize marijuana, and where in several provinces, de facto, law enforcement doesn't give a monkeys about marijuana because they can't, because they're overwhelmed. Portugal, Switzerland, uh, Holland to a degree. What's happening is you're seeing that harm reduction strategies, which are focused on trying to, you know, concentrate on the victims of, of, of drugs, which includes the users, are becoming, are seen as more preferable than the tough deterrence-led war on drugs that uh, is uh, in the United States, uh, which is the prevailing wisdom in the United States. Even in the United States, you have a situation where state by state, personal possession is being uh, decriminalized and medical marijuana is happening left, right and center. And for the first time, Obama instructed US delegates to the UNODC uh, in March of last year that they were not to use the phrase the war on drugs. And Hillary Clinton, in a landmark decision when she went to Mexico last year, first, for the first time ever, raised the issue of demand in the United States as the problem and not those feckless Mexicans, which is the usual attitude of Americans, um, <coughs> uh, pushing the stuff into the north. So things are changing. They change very slowly. You won't get it done overnight. But I think the wheel is turning. Thank you. Michael. Sorry, including responses. We need to be clear about definitions. Decriminalization or legalization of what? The sale or the purchase or the possession for personal use. If you're not clear about what you're talking about, then you can find all sorts of arguments which aren't going to make very much sense. Portugal, Switzerland, Holland, none of them, as far as I'm aware, have legalized the sale of heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, and a lot of other drugs. They're talking about the use or the personal possession for personal use of certain drugs. UNODC agrees that the main focus should be, number one, drug use should be treated as an illness universal access to drug treatment, and two, there needs to be a end of the tragedy of areas that are out of control. The illicit cultivation takes place in regions out of government control. Most drugs are sold in neighborhoods where public order has broken down. Housing, jobs, education, public services, and recreation is what UNODC is on record as saying is needed as a solution. Third, there are international agreements against organized crime 
that are not sufficiently being used, the Transnational Organized Crime Convention the, and others, are not being used adequately, including, and most importantly, money laundering. Fourth, greater efficiency in law enforcement includes focusing on high-profile, high-volume, violent criminals. I agree completely with Mr. Glennie, which is you do not have people busting small-time dealers or users and stuffing them into jail. We believe that there needs to be drug treatment and alternatives to imprisonment. So let's get it clear that there's a lot of agreement there. Where there is not agreement is that the gangs who are killing dozens per week in Mexico, according to his statistics, I don't think that if you simply say, okay, everything is legal, it's going to be sold by the government now or by their authorized agents, that those gangs are going to stop fighting for power because it's a power struggle. If you take opium out of the Afghanistan factor and legalize that, other than making the farmers perhaps starve, you're not going to end the war in Afghanistan either because there are other reasons. And the Taliban gets a minority of its funding through drugs. The majority are from taxes on other issues, on other things than drugs. I also think that it's not necessarily going to work because there's a trade-off. For someone to say, let's regulate, let's only make this a little bit potent, then the users who want pure or nearly poor, pure drugs are going to get it from their dealers and not from the government. If the government says we're going to give you white bread cocaine or heroin or we're not going to give you certain drugs, it's up to us to decide what percentage is drug and what percentage is cutting agent, then you can bet a lot of people are not going to want to go to those government stores. And therefore, Again, it goes back to what we were saying before. While I agree education has to be used, I think that you show me a state that has legalized the trafficking and indeed has little state stores which sells drugs and then try to educate the young people there. This stuff's really bad for you even though it's being sold. Now you can try it. It took a long time with tobacco. It took a long time. But you're not, you're going to have an initial, for a while, bump in using way up. And the significance is that drugs kill you even if they don't have rat poisoning in them. That is not the reason why, the only reason why you die when you use too many drugs. Again, you have to figure out what the increase is. If there's very little of an increase, then that means that overall you may want to consider such a policy. But as far as I'm aware, correct me please, none of the Latin American countries you talked about talked about legalizing trafficking of heroin, cocaine, uh, uh, ice, amphetamine, or others. Oh, no. The, 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 Cardoso, yeah, the Cardoso Council has called for the legalization of cocaine. I, okay. I would... Um, mm -hmm.
I would very much like to, we've run out of time, I'd very much like to invite you to read the papers on the Crisis States Research Center website on Colombia, on Afghanistan, on the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and, and to, to, to uh, communicate with the center if you have further questions related to this debate. Take a look at our website. In the meantime, let me thank our two our two guests for a spirited debate, and I think that everyone feels a bit more informed.